Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Kevin Douglas, visiting assistant professor of law at George Mason University. We'll be discussing his forthcoming paper, Michael Milken, A Case Study in America's Moral Schism, which is forthcoming in the Tennessee Journal of Law and Policy. Kevin, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Kevin, Michael Milken has certainly been in the news recently. I wonder if we could open this conversation and our discussion about your paper with a little bit of his background. Who is Michael Milken? Who was he at the zenith of his career in the financial industry? And what was the academic idea that changed his life that sort of got him to that zenith and in the process changed the financial and the the corporate landscapes? Sure. At his zenith, Michael Milken was the guy who could get any deal done. We could say on Wall Street, despite the fact that his offices at his best point in his career were in, I think, Southern California. But basically, he worked for an investment bank called Drexel Burnham. And he was a guy who was able to use leverage buyouts, high debt financing to help people take over companies in the 70s and 80s, um, and essentially was a part of the takeover frenzy that kind of roiled a lot of people in America since it often resulted in a lot of layoffs and a whole lot of what seemed like instability in the marketplace, but also, uh, you know, from the, the view of certain investors and economists created a lot of value for the American economy and created a very high returns for a lot of investors. And how did his career get to that point where he was this sort of magic man for the uh, leveraged buyout industry, for the junk bond industry, became the king of junk bonds, as he was known. How did he progress from an undergraduate up to that point? So he actually, interestingly, started out, I think, trading his own stocks as in high school and then was good enough at it, picked up a strategy of investing in low grade, therefore meaning just simply high risk bonds while in college and did so well enough to be able to convince some of his parents' friends to let him invest their money. And he came up with a strategy of investing in lower grade bonds on his own. The idea is if you have a security that has higher volatility, there's a greater opportunity for generating returns because there's going to be more of an opportunity to generate positive returns when a stock goes up and a greater opportunity to even profit if you can short a bond or a security when it's on its way down. But he comes up with the idea on his own, sees the greater volatility in the lower grade debt comes up with a strategy for investing in it. And while at Berkeley for undergrad, he finds out that there were actually some uh, professors who ran a study that essentially validated his theory that he came up with on his own and showed that a long period of time, a portfolio of low-grade debt had higher returns than a portfolio of high-grade debt, the lower risk, more stable bonds. And so he essentially ran with that, both investing for himself and family in undergrad. And then after graduating from Wharton Business School, he was able to convince the folks at Drexel Burnham to allow him to pursue that strategy in their investment bank. So it seems uh, fairly obvious now, and it seems well supported by literature and certainly by industrial history, but it was something new under the sun and innovative. And it's kind of interesting to think about him convincing his parents' friends to allow him to manage their portfolios. This was a little bit before hedge funds were kind of a big uh, asset class. Yeah. And and, and I don't want to assume that, uh, you know, they were able to convince him to manage their entire portfolios, but he was able to convince them to at least manage some of their money and did so with some success. 
in terms of where he was at the zenith of his career, he essentially became a guy who was able to help people who were running relatively successful companies, say a hundred million dollar a year in revenue companies to get the financing that would allow them to buy multi-billion dollar companies. And he did so and the returns on these bonds and the success of the companies post acquisition were so successful that he was able to eventually be able to raise the financing for these transactions just based on writing letters, what they call highly confident letters, saying we're highly confident we're going to be able to get the financing together for these deals, as opposed to other folks who usually would have had to receive commitments from banks and other financing sources in order to pull together the money necessary to you know, make a multi-billion dollar purchase. So he had enough respect and enough clout, enough success that people were willing to simply buy into his deals based on him saying, I'm highly confident that this is going to work. So a highly confident letter is a lot cheaper than a commitment letter. But uh, if you've sort of got the track record behind you to, to back it up, it sort of drives its own value. So the paper's title, uh, or part of the subtitle is referring to America's moral schism, uh, particularly as it might relate to Milken. What were some of the reactions to his work? Were there supporters? Were there detractors? What were some of the criticisms that this revolution that he sparked drew? And what were some of the supporting words that it drew? So it was predominantly negative. It wasn't like there was a large public controversy in way we have like 50-50 splits on a lot of controversial issues today. It was predominantly negative, probably for multiple reasons, including uh, the stuff that makes me describe this as evidence of a moral schism in American law and culture. But in a sense, you know, the takeover industry had this high profile reputation of people doing deals, taking over companies and firing some large number of the employees, therefore laying off American workers, and then breaking up companies, which and, and, and earning a lot of profits in doing a thing that to the normal observer seems like it's not a value creating activity. So on the one hand, you just have folks who, because it's the world of finance, people have forever thought that folks in finance don't create value. They're paper shufflers. They're out there not doing anything to earn their returns. But in addition, with Milken and the takeover industry, they were shifting around companies and laying off workers and, you know, laying off workers upsets people, shifting around companies to earn returns doesn't seem like it's necessarily a value creating activity. So there was a lot of opposition from the regular observer. But in addition to that, these were hostile takeovers. They weren't negotiating with boards of directors and getting the buy-in of the people who were already managing the companies. They were hostile takeovers. So they were deposing well-established people who were able to, for you know, several decades run their companies without the fear that someone was going to come along and take it away if they weren't, you know, maximizing value for shareholders. So you also develop some opposition from the high-paid managers who were also being thrown out of their jobs. And But these folks actually had the clout necessary to be able to get folks who are involved in regulation to be convinced that this is a problem for the American economy. These folks are not doing something that's value inducing. And so it, it's a really big problem. So you had a lot of opposition. The small bit of support he received came from a handful of economists, including people like Dan Fischel at University of Chicago and Henry Manny, who may or may not have been at George Mason Law School at this time, but later went on to help make George Mason Law School into the powerhouse that it is today. So you had a, a small handful of economists who, who looked at the activity as a value creating activity, not only because it generated profits for shareholders because it generally involved reorganizing companies in a way that made them more efficient. 
before one of the reasons the buyout frenzy was even possible is because there were laws in place that encourage the creation of conglomerates. And just like lay folks say, when you're the jack of all trades, you're the master of none. A lot of these companies seem to lose efficiency because you had one person managing lots of different industries. There are very few people who have historically been able to do that with a lot of success. There's been Jack Welsh and right now Jeff Bezos, but those are really the only two well-known people who could really get that done very, very well. Most people assume you lose efficiency and lose profitability when a, a CEO and a management team sticks their fingers into too many areas of specialization. And so there was a lot of opportunity for someone to come along and to essentially restructure things to make companies more specialized. The economists thought that this was very positive. It was good for the American economy. It was good for business efficiency. And they figured it would be good long term for both employees and for consumers. So they were the support source. So there's a normative question around Milken's financial revolution and the leveraged buyout boom of the 1980s. And that normative question can turn around, is this efficient? If it's efficient, does it matter? Are there higher values that we should be concerned about other than efficiency? But that's all a normative debate over Milken's business practices and the ideas that he represented. But there's also more of a, a question about whether some of his practices were legitimate, whether they were lawful. Could you maybe discuss a little bit of kind of what led to Milken's downfall? Because as with every tragedy or story, there's a rise and then there's a fall. Could you maybe discuss that fall a little bit? What happened? What did Milken do or what was he alleged to have done? Was this controversial? Who were some of the players involved? And how did this downfall factor into debates over financial innovation and and his work and legacy? So I think in response to the takeover frenzy, which many average Americans and wealthy Americans had an opposition to, there eventually was developed a push at the federal regulators to clamp down on the takeovers and the the frenzy of buyouts. And one response was that the SEC started going after a lot of high profile investors in the 80s. And one of the people they went after was a guy named Ivan Boski, who was charged with and pled guilty to insider trading and agreed to work with regulators to capture other people who he said were also engaged in insider trading and other securities violations. And one of the things that this came to light before or after Bosky pled guilty, but essentially Bosky was buying inside information from an employee of the investment bank Drexel Burnham, which is where uh, Michael Milken was working. But long story short, Bosky was able to argue that he at some point made a deal with Michael Milken or that Milken was also supplying him inside information. Specifically, what he said was that on a particular deal, Milken's client was trying to buy an insurance company. And Boski came along to just simply be an investor who was going to come along for the ride and, and asked Milken, should he participate? Should he buy this stock? Because if the idea would be if he did buy the stock, if the deal was successful, Boski would be able to benefit from the premium that was going to be paid during the takeover. And I think according to the records, Michael uh, Milken told him that it was a good idea to buy the stock and even recommended that he speak to the guy who was going to um, lead the company post takeover to let him know, feel confident that it was a good idea for him to buy. Boski reports that Milken told him that definitely buy the stock. I think it's a good investment. And Bosky says, ask them more specific questions. And I think Milken's response was something to the effect of don't worry about it, just buy the stock. And I think when he spoke to the guy who was going to run the company afterwards, he had a similar response is look, just buy the thing. Don't worry about it. Later on, when regulators asked what did these statements mean, Bosky described this as industry code for we are doing a deal, you should go forward with this. As if Milken had directly told him, we are in the process of making this takeover happen and we're, we're definitely going forward with it. And we promise you that there was a this activity called stock parking. We promise you that you won't lose money on this deal. The idea was that 
if Milken had promised to make Bolsky whole, if he invested in this insurance company and failed to profit, that's an activity called stock parking. And it's unlawful because it takes away the risk for the investor, Bosky, and usually means that he received information that maybe he wasn't supposed to receive. It's a weird kind of violation that doesn't sound like the kind of thing we put people in jail for in other contexts. But in the context of securities regulation, it comes across as a, a failure to disclose and undermining what we see as the normal functioning of securities markets. What happened to Michael Milken? Bolsky sets up to have a conversation with Milken in which he gets Milken to say something like, yes, I did say that we would take care of you if things went wrong with that investment. And that ends up being enough for the thing 96 counts against him, including related to tax evasion, securities violations, and mail and wire fraud, a whole host of number of charges, all related to the idea that Bolsky helped Milken to engage in securities violations in some way, shape or form. The investigation goes on for several years, and it's a very high-profile investigation in which the Department of Justice often leaked news to media about what was going on. And essentially, you know, it, it was a trial of public opinion without actually necessarily going to court. Milken comes out and says that he's innocent and he's going to fight this thing till the end. And about a year later, actually pleads guilty to about six counts. And some of the counts related to tax evasion or, or tax violations, some related to mail and wire fraud, and some related to this stock parking charge. And I don't think any were specifically related to insider trading, but the air around the entire pursuit and prosecution and eventual guilty plea was that it was all caught up with insider trading and a whole host of other things. The Department of Justice, specifically under Rudolph Giuliani, which makes the pardon really interesting because I think it said that someone said somewhere that Rudolph Giuliani supported him receiving the pardon. But it was Rudolph Giuliani's Department of Justice that went after Milken. And what's been described to me is that there were a lot of pressure tactics placed on him, the idea that his entire family would be dragged through the mud if he didn't plead to the charges. And it seems like that's what ended up happening. He pleads guilty, six of the 96 counts. He is sentenced to 10 years in prison and some very large, some to be paid out. And eventually that gets brought down to about three years in prison, a three-year sentence. And he commits to paying something like $600 million in civil damages. That was you know, put into a fund that was supposed to go to all the people who were supposed to be hurt by the practices he engaged in that was supposed to be harmful. So $600 million fine, that's pretty big, uh, or uh, restitution, that's a pretty big amount. What, what are we talking about in terms of what he earned over his career as a financier? That was supposed to be something close to one year's pay for him. So he, he probably had a lot more than $600 million. So but that, I think that, and, and so in some ways, probably left a lot of people unsatisfied, even though it was probably, I think, six times what Bosky was fined when he pled guilty to insider trading. But some people were unsatisfied given how much wealth Milken likely had at the time. And presumably still has to this day. He is no longer... Uh, in prison. Uh, and as uh, you just alluded to, he is actually now pardoned of, of the crimes that he pleaded guilty to recently by President Trump. And I wonder if that could bring us to the topic that's kind of at the core of your paper, which is the moral tension at play in the life and times of Michael Milken. What is that tension? And what is maybe the recent pardon by President Trump and some of the support from various folks that Milken had for that pardon say about the tension uh, that you're talking about here? I think the tension animates in two different ways. On the one hand, we're like a society that loves wealth creation and successful people. And I think you can see that in the fact that we idolize athletes, movie stars, singers. We, we love these people. We often encourage our children to go on to be hardworking and wealthy individuals. 
Um, but at the same time, I think we're often very skeptical of wealth inequality, but especially in wealth inequality when the wealth is generated in the finance industry. It's this two-pronged thing or maybe a multi-pronged thing where we either A, you have some people who just straight up and down think economic inequality is unfair and needs to be stopped. But then you have people who think, no, if you work hard and make the money, then that's fair no matter how unequal the outcomes are. But people in finance aren't really creating any value. They're moving paper around. They're not doing anything that's productive. They don't deserve that wealth. Sometimes maybe they're screwing over the American people by making loans they they shouldn't make. And I think that all gets caught up in the very natural resentment that might come from and you know jobs and industries being thrown into disorder by takeovers like uh the, it is upsetting when lots of people get laid off if you're uh, whether you're a blue collar person or a high paid manager or director it's upsetting to lose your job and i think that natural upset gets connected to these ideas that maybe uh wealth inequality is unfair especially wealth inequality that comes out of the finance space but that view that wealth inequality is unfair, and especially when it comes out of the finance space, contrasts with, again, the American embrace of the hardworking performer athlete who gets rich and has these big mansions. But it also runs against the fact that in other spaces, we are perfectly okay with inequality that's rooted in things like relational or information advantages. Usually in the finance space, one of the ways in which you see people regularly punished for inequality is when they benefit from information advantages. They are able to trade on information that other people don't have and generate profits with relative certainty. In every other space, it seems like trade secret encourages people to trade with information advantages. Whether you have an advantage over your competitors, your suppliers, or your consumers, trade secret uh, encourages and protects trading with an information advantage. And the thing that's considered unfair in that space is using trade secret owners' information without their consent. Um, believe it or not, trade secret is actually a subspecies of unfair competition doctrine. And you can find case law out there using terms that talk about what's fair is to let the owner of the information be the one to receive and have the fruits and the value that w- of the labor that went into producing the information, uh, which is the exact opposite of what we see in cases related to insider trading, which is that the idea is what's unfair is trading with the information advantage. Fairness requires that you share that information with the public at large before you trade. And so you have these completely different conceptions of fairness animating the discussions of these various areas of business. And I think they come to the forefront in what's happening with Michael Milken. That's the tension at play What do you think in terms of this criticism that the financial industry is just pushing paper, as you mentioned, and it's not really doing anything valuable that we would want to reward or credit? So I think it's definitely uh, a flawed idea. I think the finance industry creates a lot of value, uh, not that it's a perfect industry, but I think there's a lot of value created when, you know, these financial middlemen help savers to find a place to put their money so that they can either earn interest on their savings or earn whatever returns they might earn if they're investing in stock and bonds, capital gains of one kind or another. And I think they're also doing creating a lot of value when they're helping people who are trying to raise funds to find the money that they need in order to pursue their interests. And whether that's they're helping you to get funds to buy a house, to buy a car, or in the case of Milken, to buy a business. I think that is a value creating activity. And I think Americans might be less skeptical of the leveraged buyout industry and the opposition to high debt financing of business acquisitions if they maybe analogize the process to what we see on you know the DYI channel with house flipping, all the house flipping shows that are popular right now. The truth is leveraged buyouts are just like flipping a house 
what you have when you flip a house, you get a construction loan, which is usually a much higher interest rate loan than what you're going to have when you're living in the house and just paying it off over time. And you use that loan to acquire the property and to fix it up. And then once the fix up is done, you sell it or you simply refinance it and then you pay it off at a much lower rate. And I think the leverage buyout space is a very similar kind of process. Buying a business for the purpose of fixing it up and making it better is a very risky endeavor. You might succeed, you might fail, but it's not the same as the the kind of risk associated with running a business on a day-to-day basis. And so lenders or investors will want higher returns for bearing that kind of risk. But it's generally only a short-term thing. Uh, people are paying those really high debt levels during a short term. And the folks who buy the companies, they fix up the companies in the same way that a house flipper fix up the house. The house flipper is putting in better windows, fixing up the stairs, maybe patching up the roof. The person who buys a business, they're improving the accounting system. Maybe they're finding you know, some intellectual property that will help the company. Maybe they're selling off less uh, effective departments within the organization, laying off employees if they think that a job can be done more efficiently without that expense related to the employees. And then they sell the business or refinance the business to take advantage of it being in a more profitable state. And it seems like a very similar kind of thing. And hopefully if folks can see that analogy and see that, I, I get that rearranging a company, which means rearranging the lives of people the employees and some to some degree the bondholders can be a relatively disturbing idea change is disturbing um anyone who's worried about all the you know the changes in the cities they see i i you know i can relate to that but at the same time it's still a value creating activity and the fact that something might be a little bit unsettling as change generally is doesn't in my mind mean that we should be opposed to it our guest today has been kevin douglas visiting assistant professor of law at george mason university we've discussed his forthcoming paper Michael Milken, A Case Study in America's Moral Schism, which is forthcoming in the Tennessee Journal of Law and Policy. Kevin, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.